0: Footsteps. No, I'm doing the foley work. You're the talent. Okay. Yeah. I all right. That. You have one. All right. <laughs> here we go. All right. Say. So, um, these are footsteps. Okay. <laughs> boom, boom. Those are car doors.
1: It's 106 miles to Chicago. We've got a full tank of gas, half a gig of memory cards. It's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it. <laughs>
0: It's live from the Chicagoland area. We are in downtown Evanston. We are not at the Union Square Pizza because it is gross out. It is Midwest gross right now. And so instead we are inside at the Holiday Inn North Loop. No, not Loop. Is there a Loop in there? Uh, no, no, that,
2: no, that's south that's of us. No,
0: no <laughs> Loop in there. But anyway, we're at the Holiday Inn in Evanston. Lovely accommodations. And they let us... Thank wa- you. We're in the mezzanine, which sounds European, doesn't it? Uh, so that Very is Fantastic. Fun. And the, uh, the stuff is cold, the guests are good, and we're going to let it ride. So, as always, we have a very uh, special... We're live from the Great Lakes Secret Network meeting. I think I forgot to mention that. Yes! Woo! Yay! Woo! So, for those of you out there who are not members, most of our audience is not Sea Grant. And so, what, so, there's a Sea Grant program in every coastal and Great Lakes state. And so, we um, every couple of years, uh, pending national uh, pandemic stuff, um, like to get together all the Great Lakes Sea Grant program. And, and we do networking, we do trainings, uh, we do evening events from mezzanines and, and that sort of thing. And so, that is what we're here doing this evening. But I am not by myself. I'm lucky to be joined tonight by our senior producer, Carolyn Foley. Carolyn, what is up?
1: Not much. I'm mildly disappointed. That we're not eating pizza.
0: I am also disappointed that we're not eating pizza, but we're going to get to that in just a minute. Um, so this is important. We're not eating pizza. We were supposed to be eating pizza. We're actually <laughs> supposed to be eating Detroit-style pizza in Chicago.
3: Um, there are booze there. We're going to get to that, too. All
0: right. Uh, that, that's what they had. That's not what we have. We're also joined tonight by Megan Gunn, our Aquatic Outreach Associate. Yes. Megan Gunn, how are you?
3: I'm good, how are you guys doing? I'm fine,
0: are you also disappointed to not be eating pizza?
3: I am, because now I'm a little bit hungry, and I yeah. wasn't hungry before, but... Hmm. So we're talk about pizza.
0: Yeah. Well, here's the thing. Um, do you might No, don't...
3: <laughs> you go. Do you want me to... <laughs> not sure what
0: you're I made was. A, a tilt your mic down motion to Megan, and she interpreted that as take a sip of whatever is in her blue coffee.
3: <laughs> it has the lakes on it, so it's it very does, fitting. It's great for great her.
0: If you don't mind tilting your mic down so we can yeah. get that primo audio quality. <laughs> there you go. Fantastic. Okay, so we're going to start tonight straight with business. This was something we planned before. Um, and since we have no sound effects, uh, we'll add them in. This will be extra fun, but that's okay. We will wing it like uh, Monty on the beach because we have a special list prepared for you tonight. This is Carolyn's top five styles of pizza because Carolyn is opinionated on pizza, apparently. And so she's going to give us her top five. We're going to play a drum roll sound before each one. Uh, authentic sound effect. And then she's going to list the pizza type. And at the end... We will objectively evaluate her choices. Okay.
1: <laughs> right. So this was inspired by the fact that we are in the Chicago area, and we were going to be at a Detroit-style pizza. Now, I grew up in Windsor. It's right across the river from Detroit, and everybody talks about Detroit-style pizza, which is like so-so. Yeah. It's So-so. For well, being honest. Uh,
0: no. Yeah. So you go. So here's the Detroit pizza we like. It's in Buddy's in Detroit. You guys say, De- "In Detroit?" Is it Detroit? I thought
1: they said Detroit. But they say Detroit in the. But anyway, I thought it sounded like Detroit. Detroit Detroit style pizza is not that good. But you asked me what my top five styles of pizza are, and the truth is, I don't even know if I have five that I would be. Okay, I can fill in where you lose. All right,
0: but anyway, number five, Chicago style deep dish. Yeah, number five for
1: sure. Number five. Yeah.
0: So there's only five, right? Yeah. And so that's one. Okay.
1: Yeah. Number four. See, you get. Yeah. <laughs> the truth is, there are three styles of pizza that matter. Okay. I'm going to do it that way. You get can my, do your drum roll this Hold way. on, okay.
0: hold on, hold on. New thing. All right, first of all, this sounds like your Great Lakes factoid, so we're going to go ahead and play the Great Lakes factoid music, which you can't hear factoid. because of the aforementioned sound the problem. Lakes so Carolyn's going to sing it. I don't think that, uh, the
1: Great the lakes. lakes. I'm
3: just making the space. Oh, my
0: God. Okay, <laughs> Carolyn, what are the only three types of pizza that matter? All right. Number one? Nope. Sorry, go ahead. Number three. Number
1: three. New York style, the super thin stuff that you can fold over. Yeah, in the half. best
0: pizza. Okay, so the best pizza is number three, interesting. Mm-hmm. Number two. Windsor style pizza, which is a little Doesn't bit shoot.
1: it does. Okay. It absolutely 100% does, and if you haven't tried it, you should. All right,
0: so what is Windsor style pizza?
1: It's like a little it's bit Canadian chute. bacon. No, no, it does not have Canadian bacon because Canadian bacon is not a thing. All right. It's so, it's, like, a little bit chewier. Little Timmy's on it's it. It's, like, no, it's a legit thing. Look it up. It wins awards, man. So, it's, like, circular, like, New York style. It's a little bit chewier crust. They use, like, a really nice thickness of cheese and toppings. Great thickness and, yeah, of yeah. cheese. It's, uh, our yeah, yeah, there our title. There's your one. title. But, yeah. yes, that is Windsor-style pizza. Look it up because it's legit. And okay. the only reason that it's not number one is because number one is... Neapolitan style, Neapolitan
0: pizza. style pizza. Yeah,
1: okay. I mean, and if anybody wants to argue that, that that's fine. So here's the question: What is that's Neapolitan so style? Chicago it's style. like the thin. Um, it's like thin oven-baked yeah, kind of like Yeah, like it's like stone-fired, like yeah, yeah, that's very good.
0: It's, hmm. it's like yummy Second best only New York.
1: Yummy stuff. So no, that's
0: very good. But the one you're missing out, the one that's really critical, is Chicago actually does have a good kind of pizza, and it's not that casserole. It's the tavern-style thin crust Chicago pizza. That is the way to go. So you're welcome for that. We're now. It turns out I'm teaching you about the Great Lakes, but that's okay. Okay, <laughs> Carolyn's top five styles of pizza slash the only three styles that matter. That's enough of that. We are going to go straight into our interview. Now, this one's really special for a bunch of reasons. Sorry about that. Um, we're really excited about this one, and here's why it was special, actually. I am saying it was special. The reason it's special is so we have a different sort of theme song music that we play with different topics. And tonight we're going to talk about... AIS, which means we get to play one of our AIS-related theme songs. That one only I recognize it as AIS-related because most of what I do here is solely to amuse myself, or maybe my <laughs> wife, but she doesn't listen, and uh, so that's fine. Um, so now here is the AIS-related theme song, which is one of two versions of an old, like, sort of folk or country song called Crawdad Hole. Um, and so I've recorded a few versions, instrumental versions of that. You get a line, anyways, but crawdad because they're an invasive species.
1: You
2: may I not see. Know this. Yeah. I mean, well. i knew i would be on a podcast <laughs> not that that's a visual medium but you know felt appropriate our guest today <laughs> is L. lauer
0: L is the glances communication specialist at michigan sea grant over in uh ann arbor michigan i suppose L, thank you for coming on the show
2: thank you so much for having me all
0: right so in doing my research i read that you often call yourself an invasion biologist which sounds cool uh much cooler than like a uh, the environmental social scientist or what have you but well, how does one become an invasion and what is an invasion biologist how do you become one or even more to the point how do you become interested in invasion biology
2: well uh i have always been interested in bad stuff happening <laughs> <laughs> long story short uh i went in in college i did this kind of bizarre mixed media major where it was uh, more or less, a build your own science communication degree. Uh, I really thought for a while that I was going to go into nuclear policy. Um, that was too depressing, so I decided <laughs> to study environmental toxins and invasive species instead. Uh, so uh, long story short i've you know i 'm a Michigan native, I was born in Metro Detroit, and like a salmon returning to its ancestral stream, I have returned to the uh, Ann Arbor, Ypsilanti area, and uh, yeah, I, the Great Lakes are a huge part of my life, water is life, and, uh, you know, issues with water are central to, you know. So why do you sound so
0: happy with such a gloomy outlook?
2: <laughs> well, no, it's because, it, it, it. well, first, you know, job security, second <laughs> of oh, all, there's always money. <laughs> In doomsaying, that's true. Yeah, but no, it's. I mean, it's very interesting stuff. Uh, there's a huge number of issues facing the Great Lakes, but there's also a lot of really incredible collaborative work going on to solve some of these huge problems, and they're they're quite international, they're quite interdisciplinary, and it really lets you engage with a lot of folks who have very diverse backgrounds and come together to solve these big problems in a way that... You don't really get in a lot of other fields, um, so I've I've really been enjoying that aspect of this work. Um, but no, invasive species have always been very interested, interesting to me. I was always the little kid who was out catching bugs and bringing lizards into the front yard and whatnot. Uh, but I, you know, as, as wonderful as native species are, I've always been deeply intrigued by the ones that have been introduced. Um, Why are they so good at making a life in a place that is completely alien to them? Um, What are their impacts? Uh, What can we do about them? And how do we talk about them when we're sort of telling stories about how they impact the environment? So do you have a favorite? Honestly, uh, sea lamprey are really oh, fun organisms. One. I mean, they're... Um, that That's one way to describe them, yes. Well, they're, they're fascinating, and if you look at them, they're actually kind of cute if you can get past the mouth. They've got, like, those very silly googly eyes. I just think... <laughs> They're very charismatic for an invasive species. I mean it's a great line into talking with people. Everyone wants to hear about these weird underwater vampires. And uh, I mean it's it's a great conversation starter, so I do have a strange bit of affection for them. Had one latch onto my arm at one point oh at gosh. some sort of outreach event, and yeah, it was fun.
3: <laughs> Did it suck your blood?
2: No, no, okay. I'm not a fish. So <laughs> <It's fair. laughs> I
3: fair. am not a
2: fish.
3: I mean just like a little nip though.
2: Oh, I mean, it it suckers on. It doesn't really bite. It's like, eh, you're warm-blooded. I don't think so. (laughs) Very
3: interesting. So a lot of collaborative work is done, and I'm guessing you do this at Glances. Yes, indeed. And we learned today that Noah stands for the National Organization for the Advancement of Acronyms.
2: It absolutely does. What
3: the heck does GLANCIS stand for, and what do you guys do there?
2: Okay, so GLANCIS is the Great Lakes Aquatic Non-Indigenous Species Information System. Long story short, it is a database comprised of multiple tools to uh, help us learn about all of the invasive species that have shown up so far in the Great Lakes, as well as some of the ones that may be on their way. Uh, there are, at last count, about 188, give or take a couple, because taxonomy keeps changing and we keep finding new weird things, uh, established species uh, in, in the region, or rather established as a complicated term. We'll get into that later. Uh, and then about 100 more and counting uh, that we've added to our watch list for uh, species that, say, are in other parts of the region or species that may be high risk but haven't made it to the basin themselves. Um, so we've got everything from mapping tools to uh, descriptions of you know life history, identification, Um, Regulations in the region that help keep these species out, stop them from spreading further. Um, All kinds of tools, risk assessments to actually say, you know, what are the impacts of these species or what do we anticipate their impacts being uh, when they're actually introduced to the region
1: so 188 established species what do you mean by established like are those ones that have always been in the great lakes or they've come and made their
2: homes here or what do you mean by that so these are non-indigenous species okay so a little bit about terminology here established in our case uh we we tend not to use that term on glances even it's it's useful shorthand for conversations like this Mm. but it gets kind of complicated on the management and quite frankly legal front um what we mean by established is it's reproducing in the great lakes and it's able to overwinter so something that shows up like if you dropped a uh i don't know some tropical species in here and lionfish yeah a lionfish you can't, fi- it can't find a mate, can't no. reproduce. It can't overwinter because, you know, it's a tropical species and it likes warm water. And uh, Great Lakes winters are brutal for all of us, including our aquatic <laughs> invaders. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the, the, the species that we refer to on the non-indigenous list is more or less the established list. These are things that have come in from other places and been able to function and kind of make a life within the, the bounds of the basin itself.
1: Okay, so then, and that can be things that people wanted to introduce, yes. as well as things that were accidentally introduced. Absolutely,
2: non-indigenous does not necessarily mean invasive. So, invasive species are those that cause socioeconomic and/or ecological harm. Uh, just because a species is introduced doesn't necessarily mean it's really going to do anything. Uh, at glances as we talk about, and the numbers are changing a little bit as we continue to do our assessments. Roughly a third of the species that are introduced qualify as invasive because they have these negative impacts. Uh, roughly a third, you know, they're relatively well-studied, they're more or less naturalized, or they just don't really do anything. And roughly a third, we just don't have enough information about them to say one way or another.
0: So I feel like we never hear about this second type that are here, and it's kind of like whatever. Like a ginkgo tree would be an example, except for the males when they have the berries. Those do some damage.
1: Smelly, yes. Oh, um, the females with the... the, the Oh, is it the females? Yeah, oh yeah. I thought it was
0: males, I guess, because of the shape. Anyway, um, so so the... what is the, this middle time? What is the ginkgo of Lake Michigan or whatever?
2: Oh, gosh. Well, actually, if you want to be controversial about it, a lot of the fish that I have do. been introduced uh, for fisheries purposes, salmon. Salmon. Oh, yeah. Uh, salmon. I mean, we, we track all of the salmon species that have been introduced to the Great Lakes, yeah. uh, that that fishery was constructed. Yes, um, Howard Tanner. Yeah, absolutely. A fascinating win. story. I don't know if that's a thing that you've covered before, uh, Rochelle. Yeah, we've
0: covered it with Brian Roth in episode... I will put a link in the show notes rather than make the live audience wait while I desperately Google our past episodes. But look in the show notes, what you can find at teachmeaboutthegreatlakes.com slash 88, because this is episode 88. Nice. Mm-hmm. The cow in front of our, they, they, they fear our release schedule. But anyway, listen to the first of two episodes with <laughs> Teach Me <laughs> About the Great Lakes Hall <laughs> of Fame with Brian Roth. So the point is, salmon are an example of the ginkgo of... Um, the Great Lakes.
2: Yes, beautiful, well-loved, but not native, Um, and that's okay. Uh, Nativity doesn't necessarily, is not the end-all be-all of, you know, environmental value, Um, and that's perhaps a bit of a controversial take coming from an invasion biologist, but there you go. Uh, It's it's, it's a more complex story than native thing good, non-native thing bad. Uh, There's a lot of, like, social values that are involved in Sort of making those decisions and how we respond to these species. Okay, so what's an alien species? An alien species is not from here. Uh, it can be good or bad. Uh, it's we try not to use that term these days. Oh. I mean, it's it's sort of confusing. Um, there's a lot of terms that sort of are used synonymously, but perhaps not correctly. Uh, the legislature still talks about, you know, alien species and whatnot. Uh, but we're, we're, we're trying to move away from that. You know, it's kind of fun because, you know, it uh, conjures sort of sci-fi imagery, uh, but it's it's not maybe the most accurate. Okay. Right?
0: Yeah. Why is it not accurate? Um, I mean, they're, they're from planet Earth. Maybe that's part of the reason.
2: Well, exactly. Okay. Um, but
1: huh. yeah, well, you... Megan just mentioned UFOs, but I feel like even UFOs
2: aren't UFOs anymore, yeah, right? Unidentified floating objects. There, we go. <laughs> there are, like, an invasive jellyfish, right? There certainly are. They're yeah. little, uh, oh, nadarians and weird little... Wait, we have Great Lakes jellyfish? We sure do. Yeah. Shut the front door. No! It's it's true, yeah. It's a, they've got a profile in Glances if you want to look them up. Freshwater jellyfish, check it out. They don't really do much. They just kind of float around and freak people out. So how <laughs> they don't I sting. Yeah.
0: Sorry, I'm going to look them up. so I go to glances.com
2: Uh, uh, what is it noah gosh i could pull up the url is it
0: glarell.noah.gov slash glances
2: that is correct
0: that was my second guess yes there we go good work (laughs) because you scrolled up (laughs) okay so one thing you're interested that that, uh i think is interesting um therefore we're going to talk about it is uh this idea of how social values are wrapped up in this right because this is like it's inherently a social construct uh, because if you think about the idea of like ecological succession or whatever, like at some point we were all invasive species, right? Um, or non-native mm, species. Um, and so uh, maybe alien species, you know the meteorite thing but um and 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 so we inherently are working in kind so it, the social thing comes in a couple ways. One is we're inherently working within the framework and the viewpoint of our our current lives and societies and philosophies and whatever but but two, like the you can also feel the social values that we attach to species and to the environment wrapped up in like the language that we use, I mm-hmm. think. And even just these conversations, and like, so I was a lit major, uh, useful, good call. And now I, I study communication and like media framing and things like that. So I think a lot about the language that we use and you hear that sort of wrapped up in the discussion of invasive species, right? And I think you've done some work or have talked before about like the use of is it militaristic language you use?
2: Maybe it's paternalistic, like all the different language we use. Tell us about that. A little bit. Sure. Uh, so, an increasing part of my work in the last couple of years has been on the rhetoric of invasive species. Uh, yeah, my would have been a better major. My mentor was a rhetorician, <laughs> so it's it's kind of funny that I'm looping back around to that. Although I went the environmental science track, uh, but yeah. So, two of the things you brought up here is uh, one is militaristic metaphors. I mean, invasion itself is a military term. Yeah. It's this idea of, you know, evil foreign invaders coming to our home and taking our resources away from our precious native species and whatnot. Um, and then the other one is nationalistic, which goes kind of hand-in-hand with the, uh, the, the the military metaphors. It's kind of difficult to disentangle them. But again, it's this idea that foreign bad, native good, and how dare something come in from the outside right. and, and rob us of our precious resources and take things from, you know, species that deserve it because they belong here. Mm -hmm. Um, So you can see how this rhetoric can get very politically awkward given our, our our current uh, situation and, and, you know, invokes some, uh, some, some uncomfortable parallels with anti-immigration messages. And um, yeah, again, this idea of uh, something not being from here, being inherently bad or suspicious somehow.
3: And that's kind of led to a lot of the name changes, right? So there are things that we could be eating, but because it has this negative first name to it, people don't want it because it's "Quote unquote bad."
2: Oh yeah, uh, I mean yeah. The, the species naming—that's the other big part. Uh, in addition to sort of the metaphors that are used in science communication, we're also talking a lot about uh, species names, and so that's both common and scientific names. The taxonomy is changing all the time, uh, but the common names are really what we're kind of focusing on.
0: Well, the species names are really freaking hard, right? To deal right. with because those are oftentimes listed in like the uh, books, uh, and <laughs> I, I bet there's I bet there's commissions. Um, there could be congresses on this. There's got to be a congress on it. I remember I was in, um, uh, I was at the University of Georgia getting my master's in, in fish bio. Um, because that's what you do, it's either that or Starbucks that's major, and um, and you don't want to work at Starbucks anymore, but the point is this uh, is, is at the time somebody there, uh, Dr. Gary Grossman is his name, was leading a lot of his leading, but he's very active in the, the change to, or the charge to get the what is now called the Goliath Gruber change that had a different name. At the time. Yes,
2: very um, unfortunate former name on and, that one. And
0: uh, and it was it was very hard and it was just the common name, but the species names, those are often really almost impossible even when they're named after eugenicists or racists or, mm-hmm. or people who Um, to speak in a value-neutral way, people who maybe modern mores would say we shouldn't be naming species after, right? So is is that why the focus is more on common names or...?
2: Exactly. Um, I mean, uh, taxonomy is... (sighs) It's complicated. The professional societies are involved with a lot of the taxonomy discussions, uh, but when it comes to common names, uh, there's all kinds of groups that can actually get involved, uh, including community science groups. Um, okay. Everything websites from iNaturalist, places where you can you, you know report invasive species, ed maps. Uh, so it's it's a much more collaborative thing and. Uh, you know when common names are used uh, among a bit of a broader audience and it's also what science communicators tend to use if you're talking to the public it helps to have a catchier name um and and something a little easier to memorize than the latin binomial Mm -hmm. so that can be really be a way to you know push some some positive change and, and change some of these common names that may not have been thought through so well originally or that you know social mores have changed around a bit.
1: Or even just things that people, like you didn't intend for all this kind of backlash to happen around a name because you're just saying, oh, this is from a place that we assume it's mm-hmm. from there, exactly. so we're going to name it that, but then there, there are yeah. different repercussions. So before we get to your question, I did want to ask, so so in uh, Illinois, which is where we are right now, mm-hmm. they are marketing a particular fish as kopi. Yes. So... What happens? I mean, right
2: across the border in Indiana, are they going to be like, what the heck's a coping? Like, And so do, are they running into issues like that? Where- that's a great question. Um, I mean, it's it's very interesting because this is not by any stretch of the imagination. When we're talking about copie, by the way, if you haven't heard about this, uh, that is the name for marketing invasive carp. I believe specifically big head and silver. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. Not so much grass carp or black carp. Anyway, right. <laughs> what we're talking about with invasive carp is also called Asian carp I'm specifically not using that term because it isn't helpful and if you talk to a lot of people who are researching these species it's a bit ridiculous to call you know like anywhere between species. 4 or 7 different species that happen so to be many. from Asia or Eurasia have totally different life histories totally different impacts all Asian carp. It's just not a very useful category. But what it does is sort of impose stigma based on their continent of origin, rather than focusing on the actual different kinds of negative impacts they have. It it, it sort of adds an unnecessary degree of confusion well, to communication like, do about they, these do harmful species. They have species? different
0: impacts, like the the, or is it? I mean, so you, you might to... want to lump them together because it's like all these invasive invasive carp is lumping them together, right? You're just lumping them together there. So so, it, but are there? different impacts where it makes sense to speak on a more sort of uh uh individual species level
2: oh sure um i mean there's the big headed carp that's the sort of subcategory within that and that's that's silver and big head carp those are the ones that jump out of the water and clock boaters upside the head and so get oh, the dramatic yeah. oh, photos of those. i was gonna say, say you have thank seen you this video it. before okay so oh, yeah. go, to the, go to the
0: show notes right now we've, we've done this on ice dr fish too whenever it comes up i want to be very clear we cannot and do not endorse this behavior Um, And so what we were showing, what you were going to look at in the show notes is one way of looking at it is this is a horrible uh, uh, animal rights issue. Uh, It is abuse of animals that are just reacting in a very natural way, and that is true. Um, It's also extremely dangerous. There's another way of looking at this, which is these videos are kind of funny. Um, And so what it is is it's like dudes on, like, skis um, with, like, tennis rackets or broadswords or maybe spears (laughs) – and they're whacking at all of these jumping carps. And so we're putting a link to that. We are not endorsing it. We are saying that it is a, a, a potentially an animal rights issue, um, I say, after eating my turkey sandwich for dinner. Um, but uh, anyway, so your point is this. We have the big head carp. They have one set of threats to people and to the uh, ecosystem, potentially. Yes. But the, the, the silver carp or the other carp, are they is uh,
1: there?
2: Big head and silver are the, the ones that tend to jump, specifically the silver carp. Uh, but say grass carp, for instance. Yeah problem with them is that they are just like absolutely bottomless pits for vegetation they yeah. will eat all of the vegetation oh. in your ecosystem in fact that is why they were introduced in the mm. first place uh, they were brought yeah. into you know for aquaculture purposes like clearing weeds out of waterways and stuff like that and i mean there's a, a really great uh Crap, now I can't remember the book. Uh, anyway, got into the story of how grass carp uh, were introduced and then were sort of let go when they made their way up the Mississippi and, uh, yeah. you know, eating all the plants in their path.
0: I think you're thinking of Dan Egan's, um, uh, uh,
1: is it Death and Life for the Great
2: It's a very good book, highly recommended. It. it is
0: very
3: good.
1: Yeah. <laughs> okay, so. Um, Is there a candidate – we sort of talked about this earlier that, you know, you have some that you're keeping an eye on. Yeah. Is there a candidate for kind of the next invader of the Great Lakes? Oh, can we set that Mm. up first?
0: Is Uh, that okay? Sure. So so managing Great Lakes invasives. Now I'm just nervous to even say – whenever I see you, I get nervous now, Elle, because I'm going to use the wrong word.
3: I have an endorsement while you think about your words. What's your endorsement? I got so my, my endorsement is if you are an educator and would like to rent a jumping carp costume to have at your school, we at Illinois Indiana Sea Grant have a jumping co- jumping carp costume. What if you were a wear. father
0: of
2: three and Halloween is coming up? You <laughs> would have to talk to our education lead. There you go. Halloween outreach special. I love it.
0: All right. So my question... or um, <laughs> All right. So uh, it, really, managing invasives has been... Kind of a success story in the last while. Like Sea Grant does a ton of work. So, part of the reason we're having on is, is Sea Grant throughout the Great Lakes just does a ton of work on outreach related to, you know, we have a lot of uh, stop aquatic hitchhikers, um, be a hero Transports. So, there, there are all these different work we do, ranging from working with individual anglers to aquarium shops to school groups. And, and the amount of work we're doing is going up, not down. And it's been a large success. It, so, roughly, you since you log on to Glances, which tracks all this every day, so in the morning you check the latest Glances dailies. Um, and you look at the dailies, how many, like, how many new species have we tracked in the last, I don't know, 10 or 20 years in, in the Great Lakes?
2: Oh, God. Uh, well, Glances has been around for close to 20 years at this point. Uh, Rochelle Sturdivant is the current program manager, and we'll be able to give you a few more details on that. Um, the good news is, though, uh, as far as success stories from the last 20 years— ballast water invasion uh, has gone way, way down thanks to the hard work of many of our colleagues at Glural, actually. Uh, We just recently recognized uh, Dave Reed for his hard work. Uh, Tom Johanjen was also involved with that with the uh, ballast water exchange systems. And so This is—I'm not sure how much your listeners know about this. but I know nothing, so let's help me. Okay, cool. (laughs) Uh, So when goods are shipped internationally, uh, you know, you can bring them across the ocean and up through the St. Lawrence Seaway into the Great Lakes. This is all wonderful. Uh, But many—you know, uh, the the thing about these big tanker ships is— they're heavy, uh, so to compensate for the weight of the actual goods and supplies that they're carrying and help balance the ship, they have these ballast tanks, so they suck up water to you know, help balance the weight when they are unloaded, and they release the water when they are loaded, uh, and it's just this whole system of, of, of keeping your ship from capsizing. Ship, uh, your ship. Which is a good thing, yes. Uh, so, uh, problem is, of course, when these big tankers are sucking up water, sometimes they suck up plants and animals along with that Uh, and so it's a really great way for species to unwittingly be transported uh, internationally between these different bodies of water Um, so with uh, the development of ballast water exchange basically there were some regulations put in place that said okay You're going from a freshwater body to a freshwater body, and we know that species can hitchhike, and then when you release that ballast water, they can be introduced to this new environment. This causes many problems. Uh, So ballast water exchange was implemented, so when these big tanker ships are in the open ocean, uh, they pull in salt water, and a lot of freshwater organisms do not like salt water whatsoever. This kills them quite effectively. Um, But... You know what even after they implemented this there were there were still some issues there were still species getting in and everyone's going how why is this happening i thought ballast water exchange was working well it turns out they're not just pulling up water they're also pulling up some sediment at mm. the bottom of these tanks there's this layer of silty sludge and things like little mussels, little invertebrates stuff like that stuff that can survive in like these low oxygen environments were sometimes managing to kind of take refuge in this sludge
1: yeah.
2: um And so, uh, yeah, basically it was, uh, sorry, I think I got the story a little bit backwards with the ballast water exchange thing. There was a couple of different treatments that they actually implemented to treat the sludge and be sure that the sludge was not harboring these organisms here so the tanks were actually getting flushed properly. And that actually basically stopped ballast water as a vector of invasion just in the last twenty years. So cool. uh, it's really quite a remarkable success and a lot of hard work and engineering went into that and collaboration between both like, you know, Great Lake scientists, but also the shipping industry. So in and legislation. So it was a real success. So story is that a
0: regulatory of, issue is it Yes. Okay.
2: Um, and so I think that's the no bob. Um no, bob. So no ballast on board. Yeah. yeah. Um, So, yeah, really wonderful story, and uh, we're hoping that we can find similar successes for other invasion pathways, though it's a little more complicated when you're talking about stuff like talking to folks who are involved in aquarium keeping Mm -hmm. about maybe not dumping their goldfish into waterways. We all know we shouldn't. That doesn't stop people sometimes, though.
3: So we know that the Great Lakes are special, and we know about the ballast issues... Like they've done the things, but what makes the Great Lakes so susceptible to these aquatic invaders just taking over?
2: Well, it's uh, well specifically industry, the shipping, um, as well as the fact that the Great Lakes have been connected in some unusual artificial ways. Uh, so you know we have the Welland Canal, so the connecting the St. Lawrence Seaway to the kind of rest of the Great Lake, getting around Niagara Falls, really opened up the invasion pathway to the rest mm. of the lakes, um, and then of course we have. Um, you know, the the connection to the Mississippi River. So we've got that other connection. You know, we've got the the carp coming up the Mississippi River. We've got here in Chicago, the Chicago Sanitary and Sewage Canal that basically reversed the flow Mm -hmm. of the river and artificially connected these waterways. So there's just a lot more opportunities for things to get in. Also, a lot of our invaders are from um, basically uh, Central Europe or Eurasia, Um, And that just happens to be a region that's kind of climactically similar to the Great Lakes. Um, The same reason that a lot of, you know, human immigrants came over from Europe and settled here in the Great Lakes because they...
0: What's that? Oh, I'm from the south, so I'm sorry about the climate. That's all. So maybe it's... Oh, wait, so it's European growth out right now. That sounds much nicer. Doesn't I it? mean, yeah, yeah, you know,
2: sort of northern Germany weather. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, but it's it's in the same way that human immigrants came over and was and were like, oh, you know, a lot of German folks came over to the Cincinnati area. My family is in Cincinnati, and we happen to be German. Uh, and we're like, oh wow, this landscape looks kind of familiar. We can grow things that we used to grow there, and you know, make a pretty good life out here um, the, the species that are originally you know native to the ponto caspian region and that's you know the caspian sea the black sea all the sort of waterways in europe and, oh, yeah, and no, eurasia um also kind of adapt similarly they're like oh you know here's some nice fresh water that has climatically similar patterns and and you know uh, freeze and thaw cycles and I can make a life here just fine.
0: (laughs) Very similar to my story. So I have a multiple choice question for you. Actually, this one's important. All
2: right, so
1: setting up the multiple choice question, we are once again on the shores of Lake Michigan. Indeed. And Lake Michigan has been drastically, drastically, drastically influenced by an invasive species called Gysinids. This is a much
0: less fun way than just popping the question.
1: (laughs) So Look, I'm doing is, it for the audience, all yeah. right.
0: Well, no, that's fine. Um, and, and so the point is this, and Lake Superior, I hope you're listening right now. We interviewed Lake Superior uh, several months ago, a couple <laughs> years ago. Um, Lake Michigan's the cleanest Great Lake. Uh, take that, Superior. Hmm. But um, my question is this. Some people think that Lake Michigan is is too clean. I've heard this before from <laughs> highly placed sources. So I've been, I have a multiple-choice question. Is the water in Lake Michigan, A, too clean, B, not too clean, Or C, just the right amount of clean.
2: I would like to go with option D. It depends on what you're measuring. Hmm.
0: <laughs> D for depends. All right. Well, uh, tell me about option D. It depends on what we're measuring.
2: Okay. So you sort of set me up to talk about dracented muscles. Um, D, for so dracented. D for dracented. D for Uh Yeah. So that would be the part of all this that was making the water a little too clean. Uh, so dracented muscles, of course, that's zebra mussels and quagga mussels, the annoying little guys that are all over the shore, stick to pipes, stick to boats, so generally the language, cause problems. So there's of annoying little
0: guys. Okay, fine. That's fine, but I just want to point out um, (laughs) the invaders are guys, are they? Yeah, so.
2: Guys, gender neutral. I have no idea about the gender of a zebra (laughs) (laughs) mussel. But uh, look at the little
0: foot. I don't
2: know. Yeah, anyway, they're, they're funny. Um, anyway, long story short, these little organisms are out here in the millions and millions sucking up the nutrients that a lot of our native species actually, you know, need. Um, and so in in some may argue that they clean the water a bit too much. This is sometimes useful for people who are interested in say snorkeling, scuba diving, checking out some of the great shipwrecks up in Alpena and whatnot, because the water's crystal clear, it looks tropical. Unfortunately for our native species that means that there's just not as much algae, plankton, and other nutrients out there for them to consume, and that can really negatively impact them, because the mussels are kind of hogging all of that. Um, now, when it comes to other kinds of pollution, I think we've actually been trending in a directionally correct way, as far as maybe not dumping raw sewage into the lake so much as we have done historically. Um, I did a little work in grad school on Great Lakes areas of concern, and I have to say that um, things are looking a lot cleaner, even yeah. in the last 10 years since I've gotten out of school, and... That's been encouraging to see. So it has definitely, it depends on what you're measuring.
0: Okay, that's a fine and nuanced <clears throat> answer. Here's my other question, always with AIS. Um, <laughs> is, is it is inherently like a, a, a human timescale issue, right? Because in the very long run, all of this stuff is going to be different because the ecosystems change. Sure. Right? So are we, and on top of that, we have all of these ships coming in and they're successfully exchanging their ballast water and, and most um, we're doing a survey on this now uh, uh, with uh, our good friend Tim Campbell of Wisconsin Sea Grant. Oh, yes. And it looks like many boaters are reporting that they perform the five steps, all the right, clean, dry, dry, or whatever. And so that's good. But I mean, it, it, uh, it just takes two, baby, right? And, um, and, and so... Sometimes some one if it's, it's parthenogenic. <laughs> And, and so are we just spitting in the wind here? Are we just like trying to delay the inevitable with all of this work? This is what I worry about, um, that like, like, I mean, in the long run, there are going to be more invaders. Um, maybe not carp. maybe all of this will prevent the carp, but something else. So, so what is the, tell me the reason for hope with this, I guess, um, on this particular issue.
2: You know, I think the ballast water thing uh, is actually one of the best reasons we've got out there. We actually succeeded at a technological intervention yeah. that really, really helped multiple invasive species. It, it's keeping new ones out. It's preventing, you know, uh, ones that have come over. It, it's basically stopping this exchange. Um, the the sea lamprey story and the development of uh, you know targeted lamprecides is another really great story. Uh, you know, it took the the. You know, Great Lakes Fishery Commission a while to develop, uh, you know, basically a toxin that would affect lampreys without killing a whole bunch of other fish there. Uh, And, you know, they did these these parasitic fish had devastated a lot of our native populations in fact some uh, of our, our native great lake species were completely extirpated and even went extinct due to the invasion of the sea lamprey uh with the invention of these lamprecides we actually are managing to keep the populations under control to a manageable degree we'll never be able to fully get rid of them and this is mm. the reason it's important to keep the funding coming because it takes a lot a lot of active work, yeah. funding and, you know, international collaboration, quite frankly, uh, to, to keep lampreys at a manageable level so we can maintain our fisheries. But it's working, and it's been wonderful. Um, so we have these success stories, and it's really important to keep those in mind. Um, now, there is always going to be an aspect of... <sighs> You know, as as long as human trade and travel exists in the modern world as it does, stuff's going to be coming in. We are always moving species, moving goods, and there's always unintended consequences. But the amount of collaboration that goes on in this region in particular is very inspiring, and who knows what problem we'll face next. But we've got, I think, the right people for the job to think about solutions to these future issues.
3: So what I'm hearing you say is humans are the problem, but also the solution.
2: Absolutely. I think we've got to take responsibility for how we've changed the environment. You know, And that's, that's one of the things that I always talk about uh, with regards to invasive species. They're not malicious. They're just little animals and plants trying to make a life. It's not their fault that they were brought here. And they're certainly not setting out to intentionally harm other organisms, the economy, the environment, anything like that. It's a consequence of human actions. And so because we are responsible for it... Let's, you know, make an effort and 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 clean up our mess.
0: Well, this is fascinating. And we've been wanting to have you on the uh, show for a couple of years just in general. And then I think was it last year at the carefully enunciated Jazzome conference. You ISP. you had a great <laughs> session. Um so so like Many people couldn't make it because of travel issues. Half of the conference had COVID. And Elle led a session, though, like an impromptu kind of session that was among the best conference sessions I've ever been to. Oh, and shucks. I got there and I was like, this is really great. Elle is amazing. I fired off an email to the Michigan Sea director and said, this is really great. Elle is amazing. So i have got to get Elle on the show. And then I forgot about it. <laughs> um, until like a week ago. And uh, so all that's good. But, and so I'm really glad you come on and share all of this interesting work you do. You're a font of knowledge about invasive species. And the way that you're thinking about language stuff is, is really leading the way. And, and I think it's fascinating and important work and will influence in the long run how we communicate about this stuff. So that's fine. But that's not why we invited you here on Teach Me About the Great Lakes this week. The reason that we invited you on Teach Me About the Great Lakes is to ask two questions. And the first one, I have a feeling I'm about to be scooped on. Oh, I thought you were highlighting it. Nope. For you. Well, the good. I'm asking the first question. It's a host privilege. If you could choose to have a great donut for breakfast or a great sandwich for lunch, which one would you
2: choose? Well, I would definitely have to pick the sandwich, but I'd also have the sandwich for breakfast. I don't have <laughs> much of a sweet tooth. Donut While breakfast. I appreciate a good donut, it is much better as a late afternoon pick-me-up with a cl- uh, you know, cup of coffee. Uh, a sandwich isn't any time so food. perfect.
0: So you're in Ann Arbor. I'm going to go to Ann Arbor. I'm going to wake up early and go to Zimmerman's. I'm going to wait in line for 42 minutes. Pay $19 for a cup of coffee, and I'm going to enjoy that coffee, and then I'm going to go about my business for a little while. And while I'm doing my business, I'm going to get hungry, and then I'm going to want to go to lunch.
2: Mm-hmm. And I'm
0: not going back to Zingerman's, because I already gave them enough money, and okay. I, who has time for that? Okay. Where should I go in Ann Arbor to get a really good sandwich?
2: Oh, man, okay, because Zingerman's was what I was going to recommend, but here's the secret. Oh, I said Zinger,
0: ah, F Stewart, Zingerman's. Zingerman's. I'm so, yeah, no, I know it's Zingerman's. It's like... Point is this. I've already gone to Zingerman's and Zimmerman's. I've gone to everything. Zimmerman's go. was in uh, Athens, Georgia. Yes. Zimmerman's. They had really good bagels there. Yeah. And you didn't have to wait that long. You just walked in and bought them. And you <laughs> left. It was a reasonable price. The Morning Glory Muffin, <laughs> rock salad. not now, in the Great Lakes. No, it's not in the Great Lakes. Um, and so then I'm going to go to Zingerman's. Do all that same stuff I mentioned. Sub in Zingerman's for Zimmerman's. fix yes. it. The point is this. Where am I going for lunch?
2: Uh, I would recommend Detroit Street Filling Station. Uh, whether you are vegan or not, it is all vegan. Uh, but as I am an omnivore, uh, it is a great option for people with dietary restrictions or who just enjoy really good plant-based food. They have a Reuben that, you know, while the Zingerman's Reubens are unparalleled, highly recommended. Uh, the best way to get a Zingerman sandwich is to have it catered when you're uh, at a conference at Glurl. There you go. Uh, and so you don't have to wait the 42 minutes in line drinking your $19 coffee. Uh if you would prefer an alternative, they've got a really good tempeh rubin, so highly recommended. <laughs> I
0: love a solid tempeh rubin. I'm not even going to lie. And the, uh, <laughs> the Detroit Street Filling Station, also recommended on Teach Me About the Great Lakes, episode, um, whatever one I'm looking at right now, 70, by uh, Laura Rubin of the Healing Our Waters Great Lakes Coalition. So it comes well recommended. Very Detroit good. Street, and, and a tempeh rubin, a tofu rubin, all your alternate rubens, very, very good. I'm on board <laughs> with
3: that. So, what is a special place in the Great Lakes that you'd like to share with our audience? And what makes it special? Special? Special! Special!
2: What makes it special? Oh, man. Well, I'm going to. Uh, this is kind of a cheesy story but you know i'm cheesy that's so the point of out. this one we want the cheesy story it's great uh, anyway no so um i have spent quite a bit of time on lake huron uh and but more specifically on the canadian side my wife is canadian uh and so we we bopped around quite a bit of ontario uh, but we actually got engaged on the shores of lake huron uh. at point farms uh so lovely little campsite the mosquitoes light off it was just nice sunset and we decided we were gonna get married and uh like huron is our witness and you know, it's 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 a great place. So the Great Lakes are very close to my heart for many reasons. That's <laughs> awesome.
0: Just opening my lake here on notebook today. The oh. first thing I'm going to write in it is this place to visit. So yeah, fantastic.
2: No, there's some really good camping on the Canadian side. The Pinery is another good option. Highly yeah. recommended. Highly recommended. You can actually find camping spots unlike on, on the U.S. side. <laughs> that is super. Well, El Lower, uh,
0: Glances communication specialist, Michigan sea Grant, Sage, the AIS, the AI Sage. Thank you so much for coming on and teaching us all about the Great Lakes.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So yeah, that was really great. Uh, Really fascinating stuff. Before we go, we do have a couple of announcements. Number one, and this is the most important one, had I been more organized, Had I been taller, had I been better looking, (laughs) Um, uh, we would have this ready to go right now, and I'd make all of you vote. But the Lakey Award nominations are, by the time this episode is up, going to be open. So for those of you who do not know, the Lakeys are, the slogan is, quite possibly not the least prestigious Great Lakes-related podcast awards. And uh, we are taking your nominations in categories ranging ranging from, like, uh, Great Lakes Outreach of the Year, Great Lakes Science of the Year, Coolest Thing You Learned on Teaching About the Great Lakes, Great Lakes Animal of the Year, Great Lakes Non-Animal of the Year, and this year we have the return of uh, maybe the best um, category, which is Great Lakes Titus of the Year. And so this is good. Uh, We have a returning runner-up from Great Lakes Titus of the Year. We'll see what happens. And so... Alright, so
1: just for the record, um, the Lakey's episode from last year, if you want to hear something absolutely ridiculous, I recommend listening to that episode, particularly for the Great Lakes Titus
0: of the Year. Yes, we love Dr. Fish. In fact, if you want to hear more from Titus, just go to AskDrFish.com, live every other month, probably. Uh, (laughs) More or less. Uh, But so, please, uh, look In your show notes, or go to bit.ly.com slash lakey or bit.ly. They took away the bit.ly.com bit.ly slash lakey's 23. Hopefully, I haven't actually gotten it. No, um, and uh, (laughs) and you can um, vote on your lakey award, that will be super good. And we have a thank you, thank you to the Great Lakes Sea Grant Network, and thank you to the Holiday Inn for taking us as this North German weather made it (laughs) challenging (laughs) for us to host this outside. And with that. Teach Me About the Great Lakes is brought to you by the fine people of Illinois, Indiana, Sea Grant. And we encourage you to check out the cool stuff we do at iiseagrant.org and at I-L-I-N-C Grant on Facebook, Twitter, and other social media.
3: (laughs) Our senior producer is Carolyn Foley, and Teach Me About the Gary Laces is produced by Hope Charters, Megan Gunn, and Renee Miles. Ethan Chitty is our associate producer and fixer, our super fun podcast artist, artwork, there our super go. fun podcast artwork, which is, is by- also on some stickers if anybody she wants any. Please grab a sticker. <laughs> <laughs> um, by Joel Davenport. The show is reluctantly edited by Stuart Carlton, while we find someone to replace the irreplaceable Quinn Rose.
1: If you have a question or comment about the show, please email it to teachmeaboutthegreatlakes at gmail.com or leave a message on our always smoking super busy hotline at 765
0: 496 4474. Seriously, have I mean, somebody it, please call. I mean, it could be, <laughs> I, I feel like the negative. Talk is not helping the hotline I feel like we should be boosting the poor hotline And here are saying unkind things about it How does the hotline feel? It feels invaded That's how the hotline feels feels... Hey, hey, hey,
1: simmer down Or is it (laughs) non-native? Alright Okay, yes, please leave a message on our hotline the best hotline ever. How <laughs> hard was that? that? How hard was that? 496-4474. You can also follow the show on Twitter that we will call Twitter forever at Teach Great Lakes. But like the Great Lakes, that place is feeling pretty invaded these days. Thanks for listening, and keep grading those lakes.
0: Closing theme, and we're good. <laughs> Thank you Thank for you. bearing with us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this was an, it, they're always interesting. Each one in their own specific o- OH! F. Rats! What? I have a question. Yeah, so we have the Kopi. Right? Kopi? Kopi.
2: Oh, we never followed up with the Kopi. <laughs>
0: no, that's okay. We don't follow up on anything, it's fine. Um and, and so we have the Kopi. And uh, so they're trying to eat up the Kopi. Right? Yes. Um, even though it tastes
3: Deliciously, like whatever you cook it in. Exactly right, It's like
2: tilapia. It like tilapia. You can market tilapia. You can market kopi I'm sure. Okay.
3: Um, Does anyone want to give me? No, some No, we got Kobe?
2: some carp. Oh, gotta... to go to the <laughs>
0: Noah Fish Fry, and and so somewhat, I won't say who he is, but he's taller than I am in directs our program. Um, <laughs> uh, he he got and, he, and we got the we did we got some carp and we got it smoked and it was pretty good on like I a cracker or whatever. Sure. But he kept talking about how he wanted to make it into a moose, and and that just sounds gross. Right. A, a it's mousse. a little
2: fine dining like, you know, pike moose. It's it's all fancy French cuisine. Out, right. Okay, no. What kind of moose? I Cocalypse. love cooking. I don't know. Here here's here's the plug I'm putting in. Are you familiar with Freshwater Feasts from Michigan Sea Grant perchance? Yes, I am. Oh. Okay, it's a Great Lakes recipe blog. It's great. It is. Oh, yeah, I didn't know
0: that, actually. Oh, no, no, I, I didn't know the title. I'm not yeah, No, I'm a, I
2: I, author some recipes for it from time to time. Uh, and so if anyone wants to hook me up with some kopi, I have, you know, emailed the kopi people, and they have kind of ghosted me. But I'm like, give me some kopi. I will develop some recipes. I love to cook. Okay. I mean, the bear is, like, my favorite thing. Oh, oh. we here? Just drive a
0: <laughs> boat in the Wabash <laughs> River with a net. I am so
2: serious. If you give me Kopia, I will develop you recipes. Let's That's go. awesome. <laughs> awesome. All give right. Give someone
0: kopi and they'll you'll fish for life. So, so developing <laughs> recipes, speaking of that, so so one of the things that many people love to do in Eastern Europe is to eat gobies, right? And no. So, and so here's the Just thing. Just say no. Here's the thing. So the thing about gobies, have you seen a round goby before?
2: Yes. Oh and gosh. so they're
0: kind of like hot dog shaped, right?
2: I see you're leading into your shirt topic. <laughs> so my question is this. <laughs>
0: Are you looking for an investment? This is my question <laughs> for you. So, so they're they're hot dog shaped. So my idea is that we take them, and and we put them in a hot dog bun. And we're in Chicago. We, why are we not
2: doing this? I mean, you and, can yeah, you get the sport peppers on a round yeah, goby. Surely peppers, this would improve the, the situation the, significantly. You Get
0: the the pickle. What else? The celery salt.
2: The relish. Relish, relish. The green relish. Onion. Oh. Onion. Mustard. Mustard. No, ketchup. No, ketchup. no ketchup. No ketchup.
0: And then you have a goby dog. I'd eat not, it. Who does not buy this?
2: Uh, anyone who doesn't like a little bit of crunch, yeah, there's
0: crunch, <laughs> <laughs> and they claim that it's loaded with PCBs and everything.
2: You know the PF, eh, yeah, but, but the, the, I know
0: the, the, that it's huge in Eastern Europe. It's the thing. This is what I'm told from John Jansen on teaching about the Great
3: Lakes episode, whatever. And so, what? yeah, well, I mean, I, 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 f- and everything else. So mm. Gobi dog should be no different. This is kind of what I'm you
2: thinking. can say. I mean, I'd be down to try it. I come from a family who used to keep the Christmas carp in the bathtub. So uh, the Christmas carp? Oh, you guys don't know about that? No. Oh, yeah, no, this is a German Eastern European thing. This carp- is why you're used to the weather. Carp soup for Christmas. It's carp a thing, I promise you. It yeah, it's, uh, many you know, things are things. There, There's certainly okay. things. Uh, but yes, no, the, uh, the, I mean, carp are a valuable food fish in many parts of the world. And so I'm absolutely on board with this whole kopi thing. So it uh, runs in the family. So, what I worry
0: about with this, though, <laughs> Why are we doing the show again? But the show's so over. many questions. But what I worry about with this is, like, I think it's fun to think about, but has any invasive species ever been eaten out of existence, or like, extirpated? I, I just don't think it happens, right? Um, and then, uh, I mean, no matter how many gopy dogs you sell or how many uh, <laughs> um, uh, mussels freaks you sell, whatever, like, I mean, are you aware of a time where that's... I mean, it's a good PR. I'm not saying it shouldn't be done. Yeah. But sometimes I wonder if we're, like, doing this, all this, you know, a dog and pony show for something that... It's only, or we should recognize it as PR. Is that fair?
2: Yeah, but PR is good, actually. I mean, I do a lot of stuff oh, with... Uh, okay. <laughs> no, no, no. Okay, you set me up here. Uh, no, this is... I, I am a huge believer in... Uh, some people will say that eating invasive species is a perverse incentive. Um, I am of the if-you-can't-beat-it-eat-it school. Um, I also do some... I, I'm a forager. I'm always out here pulling garlic <laughs> mustard and turning it into pesto when I'm not you know, out doing Great Lakes you stuff. Know, basil
0: exists, right? What's that? Basil exists.
2: Oh, oh, certainly, uh, you know, but, you know, it's not growing everywhere in your local parks and choking out your native wildflowers. Mm. So, you know, big, big believer in, you know, making use of what you've got on hand. And I would much rather see something be eaten than, you know, just buried in a landfill somewhere. I mean, there's still animals and plants and And I would like to respect their lives and at least, you know, get some nutritional content out of it. So as long as they're not loaded with forever chemicals, bring it on.